When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 252. Today, we're talking about bariatric or metabolic surgery. Overweight and obesity occur when excess fat accumulation increases the risk for negative health outcomes. Fat can deposit under the skin, in particular areas of the body or within organs. Broadly speaking, excess fat accumulation is likely to be present when an individual's body mass index, their BMI, is elevated above 25 in the case of overweight and 30 in the case of obesity. There are several caveats and nuances to this topic which have been discussed in detail in previous podcast episodes. Of particular importance is that different ethnicities and age groups can have different cutoffs based on evidence showing stronger relationships between the different BMI values and excess body fat. For example, it is recommended that individuals of South Asian descent use BMI cutoffs of 23.75 instead of 25 for overweight and 27.5 versus 30 for obesity, as these individuals tend to have smaller skeletons, among other factors, uh, therefore limiting the amount of muscle mass and increasing the amount of fat mass that they are likely to have at a given height and weight. The prevalence of obesity among U.S. adults is currently about 42%, whereas in the pediatric population, nearly 20% or 15 million children are burdened with obesity. This isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, as global rates of obesity are also increasing. The worldwide prevalence of overweight and obesity has doubled since 1980 to an extent that nearly one-third of the world's entire population meets diagnostic criteria for overweight or obesity. In previous podcasts and articles, we've talked about the management of overweight and obesity using lifestyle interventions like diet and exercise and also medications, but to date, we haven't formally addressed the use of surgery for individuals in managing overweight or obesity. The procedures performed to manage obesity were traditionally referred to as bariatric surgery from the Greek words baros, meaning weight, and iatrikos, meaning medicine. We now have an improved understanding that these procedures work principally through complex metabolic and hormonal effects, not just restriction or making the stomach smaller or re-instrumenting the gastrointestinal system. As a result, the terminology has been updated to metabolic surgery, or the combined term metabolic bariatric surgery, with the acronym MBS. In the United States, approximately 2 million patients underwent bariatric surgery between the years 1993 and 2016. 80% of these procedures are performed on women, despite equivalent prevalence of obesity between men and women. Overwhelmingly, Metabolic or bariatric surgery is the most effective intervention for sustained long-term weight management and improving or preventing obesity-related health complications. While many perceive these surgical procedures to be risky, the complication rates have decreased from 11.7% in 1998 to 1.4% in 2016. Similarly, mortality rates from surgery have declined from 1% in 1998 to 0.04% in 2016. Despite all of this, 
only 0.5% of eligible patients actually underwent bariatric surgery in 2016, a trend that has not meaningfully changed in the last 20 years. On this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we'll discuss these procedures, how they work, their effects on health and performance, and much, much more. You guys have probably been hearing on the other side of the line right now, the breathy noises of the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Osner Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, uh, I'm feeling okay. I guess I'm breathing a little heavier th this week than last week, but well, you, you <laughs> are you post work. Think? You are post workout right now, so your respiratory rate is likely increased due to some <laughs> sympathetic autonomic nervous system discharge plus excess post exercise oxygen consumption. You sure. know, so you gotta gotta do all that to keep up with the muscle protein synthesis and such. But otherwise, I'm ready to flex my very limited surgical muscle today. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that's I was. We'll just start with that. What prompted you to want to do this? Because normally we pick up topics that we either have a personal interest in or that are topical or, you know, something's going on in the, in the news. And this just, it's not that it came out of left field because we do talk about metabolic surgery, bariatric surgery uh, quite often, uh, usually in passing though. So I was, I was, you know, when you said, hey, let's do a podcast on this, I go, I mean, okay, but also why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, we talk about health in general. We talk about obesity a fair amount. We've spent and a substantial amount of time talking about the, you know, anti-obesity medicines. We've covered the new ones as they have come out in terms of like breaking research and stuff like this. And I, you know, recognized that we have this intervention that can, that still beats all of the medicines um, and has been beating all of the medicines for a very long time and is drastically underutilized and is something that uh, just felt like was a huge gap in our like coverage and discussion of this topic, um, which reflects, you know, the huge gap that it falls in in uh, in practice in, in terms of it being underutilized, under referred for. Um, and there are so many uh, misperceptions about it, both in the general public and among, you know, clinicians. I've heard all sorts of nonsense from colleagues about of their of their hot takes about these types of surgical procedures that I felt that given our platform you know we hear messages all the time from people who um, you know feel like they have been positively impacted by something we've mentioned or discussed whether training related health related whether it prompted them to you know pursue treatment that they didn't think they were gonna you know pursue treatment for otherwise talk to their doctor whatever the case is and it feels like this is another opportunity to um, educate, to destigmatize, to bring people's perceptions about this stuff more in line with actual evidence and data instead of what I think is really prevalent at the moment about them, where people's beliefs are mainly informed by just like stories. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. The, you know, one question we'll probably get to later, though, is like, do you think the pushback against bariatric surgery now rebranded after the glow up to metabolic or metabolic bariatric surgery. Do you think the pushback against that or the stigmatization for those individuals undergoing or considering these procedures is greater, equal, or less than the anti-obesity medications like Wagovi, like Ozempic, like Manjaro, or now uh, Zepbound? Yeah, my my sense, if I had to make up an answer based on nothing at all, uh, which you know, as we're as we're prone to do, <laughs> is, is that I think the stigma for the medicines is likely to be and remain higher than it is for the the surgery. That's just kind of my my gut sense, if you will. Your gut, hey, that that is a. <laughs> you see what I did there? there. <laughs> I see what you did there. That's excellent. Yeah. All right, so yeah. we're going to talk about all that and more on this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode two hundred fifty-two. Austin, give people the history on this. When did this first start becoming a thing and how did it start? 
because we have a lot to talk about today, I'm not going to trace every historical step, but I did find an interesting historical anecdote that I thought was worth sharing when I started digging into the, the background of this. And I'm just going to quote from one of the quote this story from one of the, the papers that I found goes that historical reports claim the first bariatric surgery was performed in Spain in the 10th century. D. Sancho, uh, king of Leon, was reported to be such an obese man that he could not walk, ride a horse or pick up a sword. This led him to lose his throne. He was then escorted by his grandmother to Cordoba to be treated by the famous Jewish doctor Hasdai uh, Ibn Shaprut. <laughs> he sutured the king. He sutured the king's lips, who could only be fed on a liquid diet through a straw consisting of teriyaka, a mixture of several herbs, including opium, whose side effects stimulated weight loss. I suppose. Uh, king Sancho lost half his weight, returned to Leon on his horse, and regained his throne. <laughs> and so that was one of the, the original stories that fascinated me. But even though it sounds kind of radical. Uh, to just sew somebody's lips shut. There are papers, case series, uh, uh, discussing this in the published literature as recently as like the mid-1980s, where this was still being done in terms of wiring people's jaws shut as primary weight loss interventions. Unsurprisingly, you can do this, and then after you remove the wires, uh, weight regain tended to happen uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I've seen some studies where they uh, in the from the 40s, the 50s, and even the 60s, as I recall, where they actually replaced people's refrigerator. So they went into people's place, they ripped out the refrigerator, they put a new refrigerator-looking thing that dispensed only a bland liquid. Yeah. That yeah. People could basically drink as much of it as they wanted to, and it's some sort of solution involving like protein, vitamins, it's essential fatty acids, etc. And it's Just like, like liquid. reward-free liquid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know that it was particularly gross tasting. I just assume like not particularly palatable. Yeah. And then people would just lose a ton of weight. Um, also, sidebar, D. Sancho, the king of Leon. Was he the inspiration for kings of Leon? If, look, if you guys know, let us know in the comments because <laughs> yeah. I, I, somebody contact the band. I, I just I'm very curious if they if this is the reference, if they're just really big proponents of metabolic surgery, like I, I feel like <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> we deserve we deserve to know. All right. So this yeah. thing started like a long time ago. I don't, I don't think most people would like, you know, say that sewing somebody's mouth shut or <laughs> seems kind of cruel or wiring somebody's jaw shut is like the analogous to metabolic surgery or bariatric yeah. surgery. But it yeah. seems like a surgical intervention for uh, managing overweight or obesity dates a long time, like goes back historically. Uh, when was like the first modern type procedure done, if you know? Yeah, so this happened in like the mid-1950s. Uh, as reported around 1954, a procedure called a jejuno-ileal bypass. And so just as a brief summary, when we eat food, um, you know, we chew, we swallow, goes down our esophagus, gets digested, uh, or the initial steps of digestion occur in the stomach, goes into our small intestine where further steps of digestion happen. And our small intestine uh, is a really bunched up kind of uh, a tube such that it has an enormous amount of surface area. And the more surface area there is that the digested food can come in contact with, the more of it um, we can very effectively absorb. And you can see how that would make, make sense from an evolutionary standpoint to absorb every last bit of, you know, calories and energy and, and nutrients that we could from our diets. And so some of these procedures that started to get done in the mid, you know, mid 1950s and, and beyond basically would sever part of that, uh, the, the small intestine, and then reattach it further down, thereby bypassing a large segment of the small intestine so that food kind of skips a large kind of middle air, middle territory of small intestine, skipping that absorptive surface area. And so you would not have an opportunity to absorb as much of the calories, the nutrients, the energy, and therefore you would lose a ton of body weight. As you can imagine, if you're not absorbing a, a bunch of this, our guts, our intestines, our colon do not love having a lot of osmotic 
uh, uh, load in it, a lot of undigested material passing all the way through, which leads to severe diarrhea when it comes out the other end. And when you have severe diarrhea, you also lose a bunch of water, um, so you can get very dehydrated, and you can ultimately get develop malnutrition as well, which was one of the limitations of some of these earlier procedures. The, basically, the more small intestinal surface area you bypass, the further down you kind of like hook somebody back up, the more weight you lose, but also the more malnourished you get, the more diarrhea you get. Yeah. If uh, anybody, like if you were listening to that and he said osmotic and then your your eyes just glazed over or your brain turned off, um, if you're familiar at all with the sugar-free Haribo gummy bears and what happens if you eat a bunch of those, that's exactly what he's saying. Yes. Okay. Those <laughs> things draw a ton of water into the small intestine, into the colon or whatever, and uh, you evacuate a lot. It's, yeah. it's basically like a go lightly prep, but instead of, <laughs> instead of liquid, it's actually in gummy bear form. Anyway. Uh, zero out of 10 would not recommend, yeah. but it's, but, you know, interestingly, when you describe that, you talk about the mechanism of effect being malnourishment in general, but that's unlikely to be the only mechanism that was going on. Look, if you instrument somebody's gastrointestinal system and you shorten it or whatever, or you restrict their ability to eat, that's gotta be the way it works. But there was probably some complex sort of metabolic and hormonal signaling going on. So when you think about metabolic bariatric surgery, as far as how they work, their mechanism of action, uh, how, do, how would you describe that? Yeah, that's something that, you know, th that was kind of the thinking based on our understanding at the time. And and a, a lot of the complexities around things like appetite and satiety and hormones, like the most common one that people will have heard of at this point would be GLP-1 because of all the, the medicines that act on that. A lot of that stuff was not really well fleshed out, determined or understood yet. But in general, the mechanisms of the, there are many different op surgical options available. And there are many that used to be done that have even fallen out of favor because we have better, safer ones now too. So we've gone through multiple kind of generations of um, surgical options here. In general, there are kind of like three big picture mechanisms that we can talk about. The first is going to be restriction. And this is the one that people are probably most familiar with already in terms of procedures that like just make your stomach smaller or procedures that reduce the capacity of your stomach. So it, whether it's actually cutting uh, cutting parts of the stomach away to make it smaller or putting a band around the stomach to make it to reduce its capacity or putting a balloon inside the stomach that you can fill and then expand, thereby also limiting the capacity of the stomach, all of those serve to restrict the size or the capacity of the stomach. And while that is probably the mechanism that people are most familiar with, I would not put that as the most predominant mechanism of effect of these procedures. It is not viewed as the most important way that these things work. The next big picture mechanism is the one that I just alluded to in that prior uh, scenario of malabsorption. There are multiple procedures, not all of them, but there are several that rearrange people's intestinal uh, uh, structure in a way that leads nutrients to not get absorbed as effectively or efficiently. And that's uh, oftentimes due to some kind of bypassing mechanism. For example, if I take your stomach and rather than let it dump directly into your small intestine, if I detach it at the, at the entrance to your small intestine and I reattach it much further down on your small intestine, then we have bypassed all of that intestinal surface area and your, and the food contents that empty from your stomach only have a short distance where they can actually get absorbed. Otherwise, they're going to come out the back end. And so there are trade-offs in terms of the surgical decision-making. The higher up you reattach somebody's stomach, uh, 
the less side effects they're going to get in terms of diarrhea, nutritional deficiencies, things like that, but the less weight they're going to lose. And the further down you reattach their stomach, the more uh, weight they're going to lose at the higher risk of things like diarrhea, gastrointestinal symptoms, and potentially, you know, nutrient deficiencies and things like that. So there's a, there's a trade-off there. Um, whereas this is probably a bit more potent of a mechanism potentially than pure restriction. Um, it is also not necessarily thought to be the predominant way that a lot of these things work, at least in, in, in mod with our modern surgical options. So the last category of mechanism, we had restriction, we had malabsorption, and then this last one I'm going to just collectively call more complex metabolic or hormonal type effects. We've talked uh, in the past about all the different hormones that can impact our appetite, um, our hunger, and as well as our satiety and satiation, how full we feel, um, you know, after a meal, uh, that would feelings that would lead us to stop eating, as well as other feelings that emerge and lead us to start seeking food and to initiate eating. All of those things are regulated by a lot of complicated biological, psychological, social, environmental factors, including many important hormones, things like ghrelin, GLP-1, and then many others that we don't need to get into the details of here today. And so what is what has been found is that by performing several of these procedures, whether the you know uh, uh, the older ones or definitely these these modern ones that we'll that we'll get to in a moment, there are really rapid and complex and potent uh, metabolic and hormonal type effects that lead to really significant changes in people's physiology within like days of getting the surgery done. So we can start to see significant changes in people's physiology. We can start to see significant changes in their disease states, like their blood sugar control, diabetes, high blood pressure, all of that. We can see significant effects on those things within a matter of days to weeks of their surgery, which maybe before we start to see massive amounts of weight loss really accumulate. And so the thought is that some of those effects come from some of these more complex metabolic and hormonal effects. And the last thing I'll say here is that this is also one of the potential advantages of these surgical procedures is that by doing this procedure, we are hitting numerous different potential hormonal effects as opposed to the anti-obesity medicines, which for sure we have hyped up. We've talked about their their efficacy before, but most of them are just hitting one hormone like GLP-1 or terzepatide that hits you know two or three. Uh, but we're not really hitting all of these things with the, with our medicines yet, where a surgery can, can do a lot all at once, which probably is a big part of why it kind of continues to be king in terms of long-term effectiveness. Yeah. One thing I was I was going to ask at, at some point, but this seems like as good a time as any other. I know that there hasn't really been any sham surgery like studies on this where it's like, all right, we, we cut one group of patients open, did the procedure. We cut another group of patients open, did not do the procedure, but we did instrument their gut, which is a medical way of saying, yo, we stuck something in there, yeah. wiggled it around. <laughs> you know, you did like the old Nintendo reset, you pulled a cartridge yeah, out, yeah. blew it out. <laughs> I, I wonder how much of this sort of, let's call it like a, a metabolic neurohormonal like reset is actually going on just from like instrumenting the gut itself versus actually like changing the anatomy. Now, obviously changing the anatomy, you have other knock-on effects, the restriction, the malabsorption um, sort of potential. But, you know, if we think that the main mechanism of action here has to do with this complex sort of metabolic and neurohormonal changes, if you just kind of like you know, again, wiggled somebody's gut around or like stuck, stuck something in it and then took it out and sutured it up. Does that, I wonder if that has like a similar effect of like, whoa, now you're way more sensitive to like feelings of fullness and satiety, your appetite's reduced. Cause we know that there's like this gut brain connection is very, very robust. And so I'd be curious, I, I, I was unable to find any research on this. I like went down a rabbit hole and you find some weird things in yeah. there. Uh, but yeah, I'd be curious on your take on that. Yeah. I mean, we are, 
we we are big fans and find sham you know sham controlled surgical studies in the orthopedic musculoskeletal world super super interesting and informative for a lot of our um, conversations around around uh, pain management. I'm not aware of sham sham controlled surgical studies of, of metabolic or bariatric surgery. That would be actually super fascinating. I do. Uh, I, I would be pretty skeptical that we would see uh, similar uh, uh, sustained efficacy. I would not be surprised at all if, you know, you did something like that and you would see some some effectiveness, you know, in the short term post-op period of people, you know, maybe feeling more full or whatever the case is in terms of uh, kind of an expectation effect. You know, we think about all the things that tend to give an intervention a higher placebo type effect, things that are you know, more invasive and more expensive and high risk and costly and high expectations of benefit and things like that. All of that tends to augment the nonspecific effects of a given treatment. And so, you know, we've talked before about how surgery is can be the ultimate placebo, not to say it is exclusively placebo, but it can have the most potent placebo type effects. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, something like this have some degree of, of impact in the short term post-op period. But to, you know, the, the idea of having, you know, sustained long term appetite suppression and weight loss strikes me as, uh, as awfully unlikely. <laughs> Just a imagine in a world 50 years from now <laughs> you go to the the metabolic surgery center or whatever and it's just like an outpatient you know sort of you know through a port you they just, just put your... the lap sticks in come back out and then you feel like you're fixed <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah they wiggle around your duodenum and then you're like <laughs> or as my anatomy professor she would oh gosh she would shudder if she heard me say duodenum she would correct me instantly maybe wrap me on the knuckles and say duodenum and i'd be like all right whatever you want just carry on yeah whatever anatomists Nerds, beat it, nerds. <laughs> beat it, nerds. Yeah, we're talking gains here. Okay, so we're going to discuss two uh, procedures, uh, not in great detail, but like the two ones that we're kind of referring to because they tend to be the most common, the ruin Y uh, and the sleeve gastrectomy. Do you just want to take people through what those are just so they, they kind of know what we're talking about? Sure. The ruin Y gastric bypass is probably the procedure that people would have heard more about in the past. It used to be performed a lot more um, until the sleeve gastrectomy has become a lot more popular. We can talk about why in a bit. Um, but ruin Ys are actually still pretty common. In 2021, there was about 56,000 of these procedures performed, which comprised about 20% of the total um number of metabolic and bariatric surgeries that were performed. And so in this procedure, there's a combination of all three of the mechanisms that I talked about before. There is a restrictive effect. They make the, the stomach a bit smaller. So you have a small gastric pouch and where it normally would dump into your small intestine, it's detached and reattached further down on the small intestine, leading to the restrictive effect of a smaller stomach, the malabsorptive effect of passing um, the food uh, into the small intestine further down, limiting the time and surface area available for absorption. This also has, uh, again, these complex hormonal metabolic effects. There's, uh, you know, certain hormones are more rapidly released and have more potent effects both um, uh, in the gut and in the brain. And others, uh, other hormones tend to be reduced in terms of their secretion and, and, and their effects. Things like ghrelin and things like that, which tend to uh, promote hunger, uh, those tend to be reduced. And so we have a combination of, uh, of factors that lead to um, a decrease in hunger, and an increase in satiety, also satiety feelings of fullness that are not only greater, but also occur earlier in a meal. And so um, all of this uh, leads to pretty rapid improvements in insulin sensitivity um, as a result of, again, not just people eating less, but some of these other you know, hormonal uh, type effects. And then there seems to be some, some thought that there's impacts on like uh, brain, uh, brain circuits relating to 
you know, food reward and things like that. Uh, and so there's a variety of complex, uh, complex effects. So that's the, the short story on the Roux and Y gastric bypass. If my description of the surgery didn't make a ton of sense, just Google images and you can, uh, see, you can see an, an anatomic diagram of what exactly is done during this procedure. The sleeve gastrectomy is currently the most commonly performed procedure. Um, this is probably for a variety of reasons. It's technically easier to perform um, for surgeons, uh, which I am not one, but uh, it makes sense to me that this would be uh, easier to perform compared to the other. It's also viewed as not really being quite as drastic of an intervention by patients. And so there's various biases and reasons why this would be kind of more often selected. So this one, as opposed to about 56,000 uh, Ruin Ys that were done in 2021, there were about 152,000 sleeve gastrectomies performed in 2021, which is about 60% of the total amount of metabolic and bariatric surgery. And so in this, this procedure, the uh, about 80% of the outer portion of the stomach is removed. Um, and so that leaves a relatively narrow gastric tube. And there are significant you know, effects of that, not just in terms of, again, as we said, making the stomach uh, uh, smaller in terms of the restrictive effect, but there are similarly these metabolic and hormonal effects uh, for a variety of reasons. A bunch of those hormones are secreted from some of that stomach tissue that is removed. And so part of the kind of the endocrine source of those hormones is actually removed uh, out of the system. So it's no longer acting. So as a result, we get a similar downstream consequence of a, a decrease in appetite, hunger, food seeking behavior, and an increase in satiety, both an increase in magnitude and uh, uh, timing in terms of happening sooner uh, in a meal. And as a result of the changes in food intake, as well as these hormonal effects, we similarly get pretty rapid improvements in people's insulin sensitivity. And then again, potentially some of these more significant brain reward circuit kind of changes among other central effects, meaning things happening in the brain. Nice. Okay. So yeah, that's a pretty good uh, synopsis of the two most common procedures. One question that people are going to have though, is like, who should be considering one of these procedures? So who is eligible, in fact? And I know that there's recently been an update to the guidelines. So can you walk people through that? Yeah. So the original guidelines, I believe, were from 1991, and they stood for quite a long time. And then in 2022, the kind of governing organizations that, you know, of, of surgeons who perform these procedures, that's the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. There's an international federation with a long name, um, and, they, and they updated these guidelines for eligibility. And so currently, um, these are basically who should be considered. This is not like if you meet these criteria, immediately proceed to surgery. Well, the bariatric <laughs> surgery police come and get you once right, you exactly. once you meet these criteria, ship you off to surgery. <laughs> because I don't want people to be shocked when I say some of these things. This is rather indications for somebody to consider this, to meet with a surgeon, to discuss it, to have a consultation. And then you can discuss risks, benefits, appropriateness, all these other sorts of things. So the first criterion is going to be for individuals with a BMI of greater than 35 kilograms per meter squared. And this is independent of any you know, obesity or adiposity related diseases, complications, things like diabetes or high blood pressure or, or anything else due to the accumulation of excess body fat. So this criterion used to be over 40 and it has now been reduced to greater than 35. Another group would be those with a BMI over 30 who do have some of those complications. So whereas it used to be over 40 in general or over 35 with complications, now it's over 35 uh, in, uh, in general or over 30 with complications. Um, so those are, those are probably the two criteria that are likely to capture the biggest swath of potentially eligible patients. Yeah. And people listen to this, they're like, well, Jordan, your BMI is probably close to 30, you know, and so if you had a medical condition, 
would you consider surgery? And, you know, obviously context matters and, and, and whatnot, but the, the thing that people, I guess, are, are not really likely to realize is that if the BMI is, is much higher than where these numbers are right now, the risk of surgical complications goes up markedly. So, you know, waiting till somebody has a BMI of 40, 45, 50, something like that, and only then being eligible for these procedures is like, yeah, so you've increased the risk of having a surgical complication and or surgery-related surgery mortality rather than doing it earlier. Also, and something we'll definitely harp on more in this particular podcast is the exposure, the cumulative exposure to excess body fat during the interim time, like, oh, your BMI was 35, eh, let's give it some more years. 10 years goes by. That individual may have developed more compl medical complications in addition to having 10 more years of exposure to excess body fat. And it's like, yeah, the idea is to not only get this done earlier to reduce that sort of cumulative exposure, but also so you're a better surgical patient. Yeah. And that's not to say, you know, just to, to clarify one thing, that's not to say that somebody who does have a BMI of 40 or even 45 is at just like extremely high risk by undergoing these procedures. Um, I think that in many patients, these can be performed safely. I think that it's just kind of on a comparative level, a higher, a higher BMI versus a lower BMI undergoing surgery. There's going to be some non-zero difference in risk, right? And I think that the other consideration, not only like the uh, the, the burden of this issue, you know, population-wide is one consideration. The cumulative exposure to obesity and its complications is another consideration. And the fact that these procedures have gotten so much safer, such that the risk-benefit calculus has probably changed in the intervening, you know, 30 years since those original guidelines were first put out. Um, and so when I say, you know, somebody who's in like the 30 to 35 range with meta metabolic issues could, could be considered for this, this is, again, not somebody who like just cracked the 30 BMI, you know, cutoff yesterday. This is more often people who have been there and who have maybe difficult to control comorbid issues or who have been there and who have difficulty tolerating the anti-obesity medicines if that's something that they wanted to try first. There's a variety of reasons why somebody could go down this path, but this is again just for consideration. So the, the first groups were those over 35 with regardless or over 30 with a obesity-related condition. Um, as mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, the cutoffs for South Asian populations is a bit different, and so refer to that original discussion for what those, um, you know, those cutoffs were, but rather a BMI cutoff of greater than 25 or 27.5 uh, could be could be utilized per these uh, updated guidelines for consideration of metabolic surgery, depending on whether has, somebody has comorbidities or not, if they're uh, hailing from uh, a South Asian descent. So it, so if somebody goes in and gets, uh, you know, the surgical consult for this, they meet with the, meet with the surgeon discussing the risks and benefits, and they say, elect to undergo the procedure, there's going to be some sort of preoperative assessment, which honestly could be its own podcast if we were going to list all of the things. What are the, like the highlights from that pre-op uh, sort of assessment? Because I know people have all these ideas about well, what would be included in that. Sure. Yeah. Anybody who's going to get any kind of a surgical procedure should have a general medical evaluation. This is something that I do actually pretty often. Uh, you know, surgeons who want to perform a procedure on a patient, they'll might consult me or my team for like medical evaluation, risk stratification, things like that. Take a look at this person, all their, you know, medical issues that they may have. Give me a sense of how well controlled are they, uncontrolled? What risks do we need to consider? Is there anything we need to do pre-op, post-op to get better control of this or to reduce their potential risk? So a general medical evaluation is going to be important. Getting 
getting a sense of what are people's obesity related complications and comorbidities that they have. Those can be a, a heavy consideration in whether somebody pursues surgery or not. If they have extremely difficult to control diabetes, for example, that can be something that would nudge you closer to performing surgery uh, uh, compared to diabetes that's super well, you know, easy to control without any complications, for example. Um, there's going to be a pretty detailed assessment on the nutrition front, not only their nutritional habits, their lifestyle habits, um, how they tend to eat, things like that, assessments for like binge eating type behavior or other sorts of eating disorders. But this is a situation where apparently in the guidelines, um, an, an evaluation for micronutrient deficiencies in terms of screening is actually guideline recommended. And this is something that is not the case for the general population. We, we you know, there are a lot of people who do this anyway. They go to these companies and they buy their own labs to look at their, you know, uh, uh, molybdenum status or something like that. We don't rec <laughs> recommend the general population do that. Um, but for people who are about to undergo the surgery and potentially be at higher risk for uh, developing nutrient deficiencies postoperatively, um, that's something that is that is actually uh, done here. And then and then finally, other sorts of risk factors that are assessed relate to their psychosocial situation, substance use disorders, alcohol, tobacco, things like that. Um, and and the psychiatric uh, assessment in particular is is an area that's complicated. Uh, there's controversy around it, and it's actually also pretty interesting. Um, there's this emerging field that I had never heard of uh, until preparing for this that they're calling actually bariatric psychiatry. The idea of this field as it relates to people undergoing these procedures is number one, to look for psychiatric issues that would make undergoing this procedure unsafe. Um, and I won't get into the details of what those are because it's not really pertinent to, to discuss because um, this is something that would need to be done in conjunction with a healthcare professional. But somebody who has just like, you know, untreated psychotic disorders or something like that, that's not usually going to be your best candidate to undergo a procedure like this that's going to need a ton of, you know, perioperative management and support and, 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 uh, and follow up and things like that. So some of those things that might make surgery now unsafe, it doesn't mean that surgery is never going going to be an option, but just something that you might need to get better control of first. Uh, also, just to be clear, uh, if somebody has uncontrolled psychosis or, or a, a condition that causes that, uh, in general, lifestyle changes such as dietary pattern change or exercise, a formal exercise program are also in general not recommended until uh, that particular condition is well managed. So yeah. this is yeah. unique to just metabolic or bariatric surgery. It's more like, hey, pretty much everything else that's going on in life right now probably goes to the wayside. We got to we got to suss this out. Yeah, we need you to be able to function as a human before uh, you know we we undertake these other things. So the first was looking at things that would make surgery unsafe right now that we need to get better control of. The other the other things would be to diagnose and treat conditions uh, you know psychiatric or mental health conditions before surgery, uh, in particular those that might relate to or predict uh, poor weight loss response to surgery. And then others would be to diagnose and treat. Uh, any surgery and any issues that emerge after surgery. Uh, we can get into the details of some of those later on in when we talk about potential complications of metabolic bariatric surgery, but there are actually a surprising amount of some of these that that can happen. I'm not going to say that they're you know overwhelmingly common to the point where this surgery should not be done. Certainly not the, the message we're going to convey here, but rather these are things that should be considered and as part of this kind of emerging field, as I said, of, of bariatric psychiatry. Um, so that's kind of the, the summary of the pre-op side of things, the medical stuff, the obesity related stuff, the lifestyle stuff and the psychiatric uh, aspects. Yeah, we'll talk about some of these mandatory pre-op sort of uh, lifestyle programs that uh, occur in some clinics or some institutions um, in, the, in a later section where we talk about exercise and uh, dietary patterns um, that are appropriate for metabolic surgery. But that is also a controversial sort of uh, aspect.
because it's not necessarily in the guidelines, but a lot of different institutions and clinics do have this sort of like pre-op mandatory participation. You got to do this program for X amount of months or weeks or whatever. And uh, yeah, creating barriers to uh, people getting care is uh, it's sticky situation. We'll come back to that. Okay. So now we're, we're like 30 minutes into this podcast. We still haven't really discussed what are the actual benefits of uh, undergoing metabolic surgery. So let's talk first off about weight loss. What sort of weight loss can people expect with uh, uh, metabolic surgery? Yeah, so a substantial amount. And before I mention the statistics on each of these procedures, I'll point out that there's this handy tool from the American College of Surgeons. Um, it's literally called the Bariatric Surgical Risk Benefit Calculator. And as with many others of these, this is ideally used in conjunction with a healthcare professional, but it's a website. Anybody can go to this website and, and, and punch uh, any hypothetical numbers in, your own numbers in. And this calculator is is, is, is built off of uh, data from... from uh, uh, large, you know, uh, data sets where it can basically predict somebody's likely weight trajectory over a year postoperatively. It can predict somebody's improvement in obesity-related comorbid conditions, and it can even project risks after any one of four different potential metabolic bariatric surgery options, um, meaning different procedures that you could undergo. It'll, it'll tell you, here's the potential risk with this procedure versus that procedure, and then compare that to the amount of weight loss that you might get over the course of a year with this procedure versus that procedure. So it's a pretty nifty tool. I thought it was pretty interesting to, to experiment with. So as far as weight loss goes, if somebody is to pursue the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass surgery, the expected weight loss after about two years is approximately 70% of people's excess weight. And excess weight is a term that's used in this literature to describe the amount of weight that somebody is carrying above their calculated ideal body weight. And ideal body weight itself is a calculation um, that can be performed. So you take somebody's baseline data, calculate an ideal body weight, that in comparison to their uh, excess, their their total body weight that determines excess, and about seventy percent of that you can expect to lose uh, at at a two year time point. At about ten years out from surgery, because really it you know, as people likely already know, we don't necessarily care how much people how much weight people lose in you know two weeks or a month after after any given intervention after a new diet after a new training program after a medicine after a, a, a surgical procedure we care about the sustained weight loss and for uh, uh, for for context in clinical medicine the kind of idea of a clinically relevant amount of weight loss is typically somewhere in like the 5 to 7.5% of body weight range. That's usually what we consider to be like clinically significant amount of weight loss and is likely enough to actually induce a fair amount of health-related improvements. It may not be enough to resolve every medical condition somebody has. It may not get them to the body weight that they would prefer to be at, but it is clinically significant and is likely to improve a lot of medical conditions. So that's, you know, that 5 to 7.5% range is really, it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're doing all right here if we've met that cutoff from a health standpoint, right? So at about 10 years out from surgery, 60 to 70% of patients who've undergone a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass surgery will have lost and maintained 50% of their excess weight. Now, as with every other intervention and everything we've talked about in previous podcasts, even related to training or meds or anything, there's going to be an inter-individual variation in response to this intervention. Some people are going to be hyper-responders and lose more. Some people are going to be hypo-responders and respond less. And there's a variety of reasons why that might be the case. Um, and it's actually unlikely that we can identify a single reason why that that variation might happen. It's a, it's a confluence of so many different things that can lead to a variation in response. But those are some average statistics 
for the rune Y. Um, 70% of excess weight at about two years. And then, of course, things tend to re-equilibrate. Some people might have a, a little bit of a trend towards some weight regain. But by 10 years out, people have lost about 50% of their excess weight, which is substantial. Yeah, especially if you put it into context with like how well lifestyle works, right? So like a lot of people that are seeking care for obesity would rather lifestyle modification work alone. There's actually a bunch of interesting studies with like patient preferences regarding what they would prefer to work. So it's not like people are like, you know what, I've tried nothing, give me the surgery. In general, yeah. people have tried a lot of things, they would prefer, hey, look, if there are other ways to unlock my potential, uh, you know, where <laughs> I can just do lifestyle alone, let me let me have it. And, and that's kind of uh, uh, some really great evidence for people who are eligible candidates for this who choose not to undergo it, you know, or just or just don't. But in any case, when we think about like the average likelihood of achieving just a 5% weight loss, 5% of your initial body weight, losing that and maintaining it for one year is about one in eight. One in eight people will be able to do that who are actually actually trying. But this gets far worse if you raise that to like 10% of total body weight or if you extend the time interval to multiple years. And so where people are like, you just lifestyle harder. It's like, yeah, so look, if you could provide some really compelling evidence that uh, you know maybe one in four people will lose 10% body weight in 12 months and be able to maintain that for five years, 10 years or whatever, that would be a groundbreaking study, one that has never been published in the research before. And I don't think like big diet or big lifestyle is like, you know, withholding this information. It's just unfortunate that's that's not really the case. And speaking to your point about things re-equilibrating, there seems to be these like different plateau points um, that have been a really awesome new paper that came out from Dr. Hall, Kevin Hall. Uh, he's like the uh, sort of like weight loss trajectory guru. I'll run metabolic ward studies and figure out like how much weight can people lose and why. So there's this uh, mathematical model that seems to be supported by the existing evidence, large data sets, that it depends how many calories that people restrict per day and what is the concomitant appetite change associated with that calorie deficit that sort of predicts their plateau. And so some of the best data we have on lifestyle alone is from this uh, study called the Calorie 2 trial. Basically, these folks were able to reduce their energy intake by about 830 calories per day which led to a concomitant appetite increase of about 82 uh, calories per day. And so you predict when all the math sort of works out that they have a plateau in weight loss at about 12 months. And then they compared that to the anti-obesity medications, in this case, semaglutide. The average restriction in energy intake was 1,300 kilocalories per day or 1,300 calories per day, which is substantially more than 830 from lifestyle alone. And the appetite increase was about half. 49 calories per day. And so just as you predict, you're like, wait, you're eating way less and your appetite has not increased way more. In fact, it's less. So the plateau is going to be longer, about two years. Uh, and then it's like even a little bit better uh, for terzepatide, but for gastric bypass, this Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, the average sort of energy restriction was 3,600 calories per day, and the average appetite increase was 58. So that huge, huge difference, you're like, wow, these people are going to lose a lot of weight and their plateau is going to be far, far later than lifestyle. And again, it's predicted at about 24 months. Um, because again, even though the energy restriction was far greater. Yes, it's a slightly greater increase in appetite uh, sort of increase than the anti-obesity medications. So it seems like lifestyle alone, there's this normal appetite feedback control where there's an increased appetite that matches the persistent effort to reduce calories that takes place at about 12 months, whereas the anti-obesity medications and surgery have less of that appetite feedback control and thus it takes longer um, for this plateau to occur. It's uh, It was pretty interesting reading this whole paper and it's like, 
once you kind of go through that, especially if you're like a very logical person, you look at the math, you're like, oh, well, I guess I really don't have a great reason to recommend against these things other than like from some sort of belief system that may or may not be actually based, based in evidence. Yeah, that's super interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I agree. The uh, Just to round out the weight loss expectations that we can have, I mentioned the Ruin-Y gastric bypass data earlier. For sleeve gastrectomy, uh, the expected weight loss after two years is going to be approximately 60% of excess weight uh, as compared with about 70% with the Ruin-Y. And this 60% of excess weight for sleeve gastrectomy typically ends up being around 30% of people's total, total body weight, which again, just for comparison, is much larger than 5 to 7.5% that would be clinically significant in order to induce health benefits. Yeah. That only occurs in about one in eight people who try to lose weight via lifestyle alone, which is a very charitable sort of statistic um, because again, that's usually measured at one year. Yeah. If you think about what happens at 10 years. Yep, that Exactly. Uh, based on evidence I've seen, I would predict that to be you know one percent of, of of people at ten years. The sleeve gastrectomy uh, folks average maintained forty three percent of their excess weight loss. Again, there's going to be inter individual variation in response, as we see with any other intervention. But these are substantially more efficacious than anything that we have from a lifestyle front. And there's even data, you know, I, I think you've cited some of the data from the Swedish obesity study, for example, which used some outdated procedures um, because it's an older study at this point. But they followed people out for like. 20 years. And the people who had surgery had a substantial sustained weight loss out to 20 years. And the people who just lifestyled in, in with a lack, actually a fair amount of intensive support along the way, they had like a, a weight change of like zero to 1% positive, if I, right. if I recall yeah. that data. These people were seeing uh, dietitians, seeing exercise trainers or whatever, you know, it would be a great experiment to run just to really just hit, you know, finally put the final nail in, the, in this coffin. So you take a thousand people from the general population, all with BMIs, 35 or, or higher, right? Uh, you take 500, you give them to the most popular trainers on social media. You say, look, the people, the people with the most hot takes in, in Dr. Spencer Nadolsky's comments. <laughs> yeah. We'll pay your fees, whatever it is. You know what? We'll pay double your fees. So you don't have to do any other work. All you have to do is handle these 500 patients. Okay. And then we're going to take these other 500 patients and we're going to randomize them to get a, you know, sleeve gastrectomy or a ruin Y, uh, whatever is appropriate for them. And then we're going to follow you guys one year, five-year follow-ups, 10-year follow-ups, 20-year follow-ups. And what we're going to measure is not only total weight loss, but body fat loss. And we're also going to measure comorbid medical conditions and people's trajectory. And total costs, total costs too, in terms of the, yes, there's upfront surgical costs, but like to pay you to train these people for 20 years, if you in, in fact want to continue doing that. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what's the predicted outcome there, uh, Dr. B? Yeah, I, I would be, you know, pretty confident that the surgery wins here. <laughs> I would bet my entire net worth and life savings <laughs> that it would not even be close. Whoever the best trainer, best nutritionist, dietitian, whatever, uh, behaviorist, um, the best person you know in the fitness space would get absolutely crushed by these procedures. <laughs> it's not even close. And that's the whole thing. It's not a judgment against the the individuals themselves. It's like their quality and fund of knowledge. It's just like, stop talking like it's an either or thing, thing one. And then thing two, why are you limiting or creating these barriers to care? Barrier in this case being stigma. Yeah. So, okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm ranting. It, it, we'll come back to that anyway later. It's, it's, fine. <laughs> it's what I do. Okay. So the I think we summarized the weight loss uh, thing nicely, particularly how it applies to the different procedures and also like these different plateau trajectories. Um, and also again, the likelihood of people attaining clinically significant weight loss, what that means, et cetera. Let's talk about the actual effect on uh, medical comorbidities. So these chronic diseases, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. If you had to, if you were counseling a patient 
on this. And they were they asked you like, hey doc, what can I expect if I uh, undergo a metabolic uh, surgery uh, as far as how it affects these disease processes? What w- what would you say? Yeah, so I think that in general, what we see is a pretty consistent signal for benefit across the board in all of these medical conditions. There is some variation uh, both by disease state, but also in terms of the severity that somebody is coming in with. So, for example, if we take diabetes as our as our first example, metabolic bariatric surgery can result in long term remission of diabetes. Um, this depends on how long the person has had it when they come into care and get their surgery, and how bad or how advanced their diabetes is. So if somebody has relatively recent onset diabetes and is not on insulin, for example, and they undergo surgery, remission rates are extremely high. 80, 90 plus percent of patients who are in that situation who get surgery will have their diabetes go into remission, not just into remission, but it can happen within days of getting surgery done, days to weeks. It is fascinating to see how quick their uh, glycemic control, their blood sugar normalizes um, even before they have lost you know, all of that body weight that we talked about earlier at the two-year time point. So really rapid remission. Now, if somebody has much more advanced diabetes, they're on insulin, they have diabetic complications. Those folks, I would probably temper my expectations in terms of how much benefit they are likely to get. I still expect to see improvement, probably a reduction in how much medication or insulin or, or whatever they, they uh, need to make, keep things under control. Um, they may still go into remission, but they may relapse later on down the line. They're likely to be at higher risk of that. But regardless, I think the overall picture here is that, um, that, uh, uh people are likely to experience significant benefit. It's going to depend on severity and duration when, when somebody comes in. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of the idea as far as diabetes goes. Did you have any, any comments on that before we move on to the next one? No, I, I do wonder though, like, so, so for example, in the new anti-obesity medications, a lot of the benefit that's seen, particularly with diabetes, is independent of the weight loss because the the medications themselves function just like right at the level that there's some uh, sort of hormonal aberration that leads to the development and worsening of diabetes itself. I wonder if there's any sort of indirect mechanisms that we know of via uh, metabolic surgery that are also taking place. And I, I was unable, I, I didn't, went down the rabbit hole and there is a lot, a lot of discussion about various hormones that are altered secondary to just the, again, instrumentation or surgerizing of people's guts. Um, but there's no real, we don't really know yet, but it is kind of an interesting area of inquiry where I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if something else is going on here. Let's move on to, uh, elevated blood pressure or hypertension. What's the effect of uh, these sort of procedures on elevated blood pressure? Yeah. So it's worth pointing out that about two thirds of patients, uh, with, obesity who are coming into, you know, a consult, potentially undergo metabolic bariatric surgery, have high blood pressure. So we have a pretty high proportion of patients who stand to benefit from this. And similar to diabetes, we see pretty dramatic improvements in blood pressure control and the need for blood pressure medicines. This happens usually within the first month or so of getting surgery. Um, there are several systematic reviews on this topic, and it suggests that bariatric surgery is associated with a, a rate of remission of their high blood pressure at one year that ranges somewhere between 40 to 80% or so, which is admittedly a, a broad range. Um, I imagine similar to diabetes, this varies depending on severity and duration, and, and also the underlying causes of high blood pressure are, I would say, at least as variable, if not more variable than it is for diabetes. People can have high blood pressure mediated by other mechanisms than just, you know, insulin resistance, body fat accumulation. There are other reasons why somebody might have high blood pressure that may be less responsive to metabolic bariatric surgery. And so um, the, uh, my, my, 
sense of this is that the effects on diabetes are probably more potent uh, than they are on high blood pressure. But despite that, we still see pretty substantial improvements in people's blood pressure, particularly early on. Um, the re kind of equilibration effect can also happen with high blood pressure such that some folks can kind of redevelop hypertension over time down the line. But there's certainly no signal for harm in terms of this like worsening people's blood pressure control. There's a strong benefit um, to more moderate benefit. And that benefit can, for some patients, be sustained. For others, it may wane over time. Yeah. I think the way I uh, like I kind of think about this in my own head is that the sort of threshold of excess body fat needed to sort of drive up blood pressure from that particular singular mechanism acknowledging that there are multiple mechanisms is relatively low. It's relatively low. And so while individuals are likely to benefit from metabolic bariatric surgery via being able to reduce their body fat, they may not get all the way down there to a point where there's no longer any contribution from excess body fat, um, which isn't to say that metabolic bariatric surgery is sort of not useful for elevated blood pressure or hypertension, just that it may not be enough. But we see that outside of metabolic bariatric surgery too. Um, for example, individuals on an antihypertensive medication may be unlikely to reach their blood pressure goal on a singular agent, for example. Lifestyle stuff uh, in and of itself not only has high levels of attrition, people just don't, don't do it or don't do it completely or, or enough to reach those blood pressure goals, but also you still see that re-equilibration. So this is not unique to sort of metabolic bariatric surgery, but I just think that threshold of like where excess body fat becomes an issue contributing to elevated blood pressure is relatively low. And so the, the likelihood of getting all the way down there from just a singular intervention is equally unlikely to me. So. Yeah. And, and and I would reiterate again, some of the different potential reasons why people's blood pressure may be high, for example, that we know that, um, you know, say somebody has diabetes and that can lead to a bit of some chronic kidney disease and chronic kidney disease is something that can contribute to high blood pressure and chronic kidney disease, unfortunately, is not reversible, um, particularly through, through this surgery or really any others. Our interventions for chronic kidney disease really serve to reduce the rate of decline and things like that. And so that's just one example among potentially many others of, of how blood pressure could, you know, persist. But just, I don't want to downplay the potential potency here. You know, there was this randomized trial, the gateway randomized controlled trial that took a hundred patients and randomized them to get surgery plus blood pressure meds versus getting uh, blood pressure meds alone. And they found that 83% of people in the surgical group had an at least 30% reduction in their need for blood pressure medicines versus only 12% in the group who was on blood pressure meds alone. And at one year, half of the patients who underwent surgery had remission of their high blood pressure versus zero people in the just meds alone, meds alone group. So it's again, the potency is high, um, but it, it, you know, there's, there's, it's a little bit more complicated in my mind than the diabetes question is here. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder about the like the compressive sort of nature of where excess adiposity contributes to high blood pressure. Like it, maybe that's the main mechanism. <laughs> anyway, unpersisting can... effect on the kidneys potentially. Total. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature. Maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what about heart disease? Because high blood pressure is obviously one risk factor for uh, heart disease um, in addition to like elevated uh, atherogenic lipoproteins or cholesterol levels. So what is the effect of metabolic bariatric surgery on things like blood lipid levels and cardiovascular disease in general? Yeah. So similar to high blood pressures, about two thirds of people coming in for you know consultation and undergoing surgery have abnormal cholesterol levels or dyslipidemia. The caveat for this situation and the remaining medical conditions we'll discuss is that these data are not coming from randomized controlled trials looking at these particular outcomes anymore. Much more, these are going to be from observational data, from prospective cohort data, from like matched, you know, matched cohort data for the most part is is what um, a lot of this is going to be coming from. And and the reason I caveat that is that we, I will just, you know, uh, upfront say we see consistent benefits across all these things. It's just that I'm less confident in the magnitude of benefit here as I am in the benefits that we see from randomized uh, uh, controlled trials. So these, I'm going to cite some of these data talking about the magnitudes of benefit. There are potentially reasons why they, these may be overstated or understated for various, various reasons. Um, so that's just the caveat upfront. But I will say that observational data here show per, uh, persistent and significant improvements in people's blood lipid uh, uh, profiles at uh, seven years out from surgery. So pretty sustained for a decent amount of time. And we also see you know, a variety of independent cardiovascular events uh, uh, cardiovascular benefits outside of people's absolute weight loss alone. Um, so in the largest randomized trial on this um, that ran, that that compared surgical to intensive medical management, people's triglyceride levels decreased um, from the beginning out to five years by 40% in the group that got Roux-en-Y bariatric surgery and about 30% in the sleeve gastrectomy group, uh, but only about 8% in the group that uh, was on medical therapy. And so when we talk about like cumulative exposure over the lifespan for these abnormal blood lipid levels, things like hypertriglyceridemia or high blood triglyceride levels, uh, a 40% reduction sustained over the course of, you know, five plus years is going to give you a much bigger bang for your buck compared with uh, an 8% reduction um, in the medical therapy group that I suspect may have uh, waned a bit from there. They were on statins, presumably in the medical therapy group? Yeah. That's crazy because when you when somebody says oh forty percent reduction in triglycerides I'm like oh statin and they're like yeah. oh no surgery in this case <laughs> right interesting right. that's yeah. interesting so there are other uh, prospective and retrospective cohort studies that have been meta analyzed most recently in 2022 in the European Heart Journal that looked at the effects of of metabolic bariatric surgery on various cardiovascular outcomes and found a fifty percent reduced risk of heart failure a forty two percent reduced risk of uh, heart attack or myocardial infarction and a thirty six percent lower risk of stroke. Um, Again, these are all numbers that are uh, uh, both relative risk reductions and also drawn from prospective and retrospective cohort studies. So I have less confidence in the specific accuracy of these numbers compared with randomized data, but um, they all you know, match the uh, signal um, in, in terms of the, the, direction of the direction of effect, consistent evidence of benefit of these procedures on these outcomes, both from this meta-analysis and many, many, many others um, that, have, that have looked at these, at these particular outcomes. Yeah, I think one way to like summarize this is is like the overall effects of metabolic bariatric surgery on individuals undergoing the procedure is that for any disease process that is associated with excess adiposity, effectively metabolic bariatric surgery 
make some sort of impact there. The magnitude is going to vary depending on how long and to what degree somebody has been dealing with that, uh, and obviously how well the individual responds to the procedure. But effectively, there are well over 200 separate medical conditions that are associated with excess adiposity. And so like we could do a whole episode on listing out just all 200 things and be like, yeah, metabolic bariatric surgery does this. It improves your sexual function and libido. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, reduced sexual function, reduced libido are both associated with um, excess adiposity. Same thing with like sleep apnea. In fact, while you were talking, I went to that risk calculator or whatever mm-hmm. and plugged in all my all my numbers or whatever. <laughs> it says I got about a 60% chance of eliminating uh, uh, my sleep apnea. At, Worth uh, it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because again, we could just keep going on and on with all these different benefits. But it's like, yeah, uh, all the various types of cancers that are associated with excess adiposity, for example. We would expect some sort of impact, but as far as like the magnitude of effect, well, that that data is going to be and those numbers are going to be messy, which I think you would likely agree with. Probably the most interesting thing, though, about metabolic bariatric surgery is not just how well it works for weight management and subsequent disease like trajectory modification, but also how long the damn thing lasts for. Because one common knock against the anti-obesity medications is that they have to be taken continuously, perhaps in perpetuity for continued benefit. But in the case of metabolic bariatric surgery, it's like, all right, we got the procedure and, and you know, we're just off to the races. How long do these effects actually last for? Yeah, this is uh, this is some of the data that I cited earlier from the Swedish obesity study, which again is getting a bit dated at this point. But basically, that that study looked at two thousand patients who underwent metabolic bariatric surgery versus two thousand matched patients who did not, and basically followed them for like ten to twenty years. And at the twenty year time point, the difference in weight was eighteen percent sustained weight loss in the group who got surgery versus one percent weight loss in the control group. And it's worth noting that in that study, because it's a bit older. About two-thirds of the patients in that study underwent a procedure called the vertical banded gastroplasty, which is a procedure that has fallen out of favor and is not really performed all that much anymore. Um, and in that study, only 13 and 19% of patients underwent ruin wire sleeve gastrectomy, which are overwhelmingly the most common procedures performed nowadays due to more efficacy and lower risk. And so, you know, we have an older study with a arguably inferior procedure, but the surgical group dramatically outperformed the non-surgical management of intensive lifestyle, inter, uh, you know, interventions over that time period out to a 20-year 20 uh, time point, which is what were really the kind of outcomes that we're looking for here with any intervention. Yeah. Unfortunately, because um, the procedures have changed and also doing like 20-year follow-up studies on large amounts of patients is is difficult. Uh, We don't have 20-year outcome data on, well, what was the cardiovascular sort of trajectory, uh, you know, heart disease risk? What was it for diabetes? What was it for, you know, any other thing? Um, But in general, it doesn't seem like these effects of the procedure wane over time to a significant degree. Yes, there's this sort of increased rate of weight loss that occurs early on after the procedure. And then there is some reequilibration in that 18 to 24 month mark. In general, this can vary by the individual. Seems like the effect is pretty persistent. And this is, I mean, I know what some people who are listening are thinking right now. (laughs) And this is getting at one of my points that I made earlier, that people in general respond more to stories than they do to data. (laughs) And people might have heard of somebody or they might know somebody um, who has undergone one of these procedures and maybe they have regained a significant amount of weight. Because I know the common anecdotes is, oh, people get their surgeries, they get their quote unquote stomach stapled um, so that you you can't eat. And then 
and then these people, of course, with a with a usually a pretty judgy, stigmatizing tone, they say, "Oh, you just out ate your 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 stomach," and then they can you know regain regain their body weight. It's a very common thing that unfortunately I've heard, and this stands in contrast to the actual data on this. And it is, um, you know, I, I one of my missions, as I said at the outset with this podcast, is to lay out the evidence and the data and hope to correct some of these things while knowing all along that data does not beat stories. <laughs> so we're doing yeah. we're doing the best we can anyway. But weight regain after these procedures to the point where people are within 5% or less of their preoperative weight, I would say is relatively uncommon. It happens in about 3% of patients who undergo the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass um, on average. And then it, I, I found this data about 12% of those who've undergone sleeve gastrectomy out at five years. I think that that data may be a touch high, but um, that's just what the numbers are. And it is not as nearly as frequent as you would expect if you just like listened to people, you know, the lay public talking about these procedures. You, you would feel like everybody gets this done and they have like all sorts of horrific complications, which we'll get to next, which is not really the case, or regardless that they regain all their weight back no matter what, which is like definitively not the case. Yeah. Again, going back to the, from our last, the debate podcast where you were like, what if we just mad lib this thing or whatever? <laughs> what if I told you? That there was a procedure that you could do where the 20 year risk of regaining most of the weight that you lost was 99%. You're like, oh, I don't want that. It's like, yeah, so that's lifestyle. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this again, guys, if there's anybody that you've you listen to podcasts that are like pro lifestyle change, pro eat a health promoting dietary pattern, exercise a lot, get real strong, gain a lot of muscle mass, we are those people. We are those people, but we're also uh, uh, not, you know, idiots when we kind of see the trajectory that the society that the world is on, and people just need more help. And we're not here to judge people; we're here to help people. And we hope that you're on board with that too, right? You can have your own belief system, your own values, your own sort of things. But if you actually want to help people, you, I feel like this is going to be part of your um, sort of either management process if you're a healthcare professional or if you're a fitness professional it needs to be part of the conversation with at least some of your clients because um, invariably if you're in the fitness realm you're seeing individuals who are dealing with overweight and obesity and this may be uh, an important sort of tool for them to use in uh, improving their health trajectory and their lifespan speaking of helping people i think that most of our listeners could get on board with the an intervention that leads to people dying less i don't know what do you think I think so in general. Yeah. All right. Tell, these, tell, tell the folks about the mortality benefits here. Yeah. So these similarly come from long-term observational studies. And the data on these typically range anywhere in like the 30 to 40% reduction in all-cause death associated with undergoing metabolic bariatric surgery, particularly the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass procedure. And this is compared when compared with non-surgical management of you know a matched obesity situation. Of course, people who even who undergo surgery, they're going to be uh, at some elevated risk compared with the general population. But I think that this has been actually repeatedly shown where there's this pretty strong relationship between undergoing these and a reduction in all-cause uh, death or all-cause mortality compared with not undergoing surgery. There's even some other more concerning you know, data. It was There were some limitations to it, but where they looked at people who were uh, denied by insurance um, to to undergo their metabolic and bariatric surgery, whereas and, and then a fraction of those managed to get surgery later on versus others who still were denied. And at follow-up, like 40% of the people who uh, were denied surgery were dead. This was like at, uh, at I think, like a 10 or 12-year follow-up. Those who, who were persistently denied um, did not survive that long, whereas those who were uh, permitted to undergo the surgery or who had it covered at that point did. So we have 
multiple lines of evidence, I would say, um, that uh, point towards a direction of benefit in terms of mortality or death. Um, the specific magnitude of that, again, is going to be you know pretty variable, and uh, the specific number is hard to pin down in the absence of randomized uh, trials. And so we're doing the best we can with multiple different lines of evidence from the observational and cohort uh, uh, standpoint. Uh, in the intro, we talked about the potential like risk of surgical complications and how that's effectively trended down to be around 1% um, as of, I think that was like the mid-20-teens, uh, like 2016 or something like that. And the mortality rate is 0.004% from like intraoperatively like surgical complications or surgically related complications. But there are like other things in life, particularly in medicine, real risks and potential complications. Could you summarize some of the more common ones that people might be facing Sure. I think that up front, there are going to be just general potential risks of undergoing any surgery, whether it's a metabolic bariatric surgery or any other surgical procedure. People can develop, you know, post-operative blood clots. They can get infections, bleeding, you know, damage to structures that you didn't want to damage as part of the procedure, things like that. That's just, you undergo any surgery, there's going to be a risk of that. And I think that, you know, that can be best mitigated by undergoing these procedures with an experienced surgeon at a center that does a lot of these procedures. When it comes to undergoing a surgical procedure, um, I would be wanting to get it done by somebody who does a lot of these very frequently. And that's re that's regardless of what the, what the procedure is. I wouldn't want to be undergoing it by somebody who does one Roux-en-Y a year. Definitely not. Um, and so that's something that I'd be specifically looking for. Aside from just the general complications of surgery, there are going to be more specific ones that are pertinent to each individual procedure. Um, if, you know, with the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, since we're rearranging people's internal anatomy, um, there can be risks of, you know, hernias inside your abdominal cavity. There can be risks of uh, ulcers developing in the stomach pouch, especially if people take NSAID, non-steroidal medicines. This is something that they're told basically never take these again afterwards because they can increase your risk of developing a stomach ulcer, which they can cause stomach ulcers in people who haven't undergone the surgery too. It just takes less of it to have that effect if people have undergone the surgery. And then again, as we've alluded to, there can be some gastrointestinal side effects. There's this phenomenon called dumping syndrome, which is actually not as common as you would, as, as you would think based on how often it's talked about in this context. But when people eat particular types of foods, typically like high sugar foods um, in a situation where they've had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, this can rapidly empty into their small bowel, lead to various fluid shifts, um, a, a variety of, of, of unpleasant symptoms. Um, and then a couple other, you know, specific ones is that in the gastric bypass scenario, there can be an increased risk of kidney stones. We won't, don't need to get into the physiology of that. And then as it pertains to the sleeve gastrectomy procedure, one of the actually somewhat more common uh, potential uh, complications of that procedure is people to develop new or have a worsening of their of, of acid reflux type symptoms. This is in contrast to Roux-en-Y gastric bypass that tends to actually improve reflux. So I think that you know, the big picture here is that um, there can be general surgical complications. There can be probably a bit more in terms of anatomic and physiologic complications from a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass when compared with sleeve gastrectomy that tends to be a bit more benign from that standpoint. However, the sleeve gastrectomy can, can lead to new or worsening acid reflux. The last couple that I'll mention that are actually... Um, uh, uh, important and, and interesting. So as it relates to nutritional deficiencies, this is something that is aggressively managed by the people who are taking the, the clinicians who are taking care of these patients. Um, patients who undergo these procedures basically are going to be on a multivitamin, uh, various kind of multivitamin mineral supplements basically for life just to mitigate the risk of developing any significant deficiencies. And so if somebody does develop a deficiency in this situation, which I have seen, it is typically because somebody is not taking their 
multivitamin or mineral supplement. That's the overwhelmingly most common reason why I might see somebody who's post-bariatric surgery develop, you know, B12 deficiency or something like that. Usually it's their, you know, ran out and didn't refill it and not taking it, something like that. So that's going to be a near universal recommendation for these patients. The, um, the last couple that I think are worth mentioning, one is some changes, some interesting changes in how alcohol impacts people. Because of the changes in their anatomy and physiology, alcohol tends to be absorbed more quickly. It leads to higher peak levels in the blood, and it actually may lead to higher reward impacts for people. And so people tend to get drunk more easily. And there's a, this interesting observation of an increased risk of people developing alcohol use issues. The people who are at highest risk of developing alcohol use issues after these procedures as you might expect, are people who tended to have those issues before they underwent the surgery. Um, but there is a detectable risk. It's certainly not like a universal thing, uh, but it's something that is uh, worth noting, I would say. Uh, the explanation for this that I think is worth commenting on, um, there's historically been this uh, uh, quote-unquote addiction transfer hypothesis where people said that you know people who developed issues with alcohol after bariatric surgery are people who before surgery had a quote unquote, addiction to food. And that was just like transferred to alcohol after surgery. This is actually a pretty common idea and talking point around this. This is not supported by evidence and is actually contradicted by several lines of evidence. Some of them are that there's not really a clear association between binge eating type behavior or any sort of th anything that you might, you know, construe as food addiction preoperatively and the risk of alcohol use issues postoperatively. And the other surprising thing is that risk of developing alcohol use issues tends to increase mainly at and beyond the two year time point after surgery. And you would expect that in the immediate aftermath of surgery is when somebody who was struggling with, you know, food addiction might be most inclined to transfer that to something else in the immediate post-operative period. There are various other, um, you know, types of evidence that contradict this addiction transfer hypothesis, but I think it's worth commenting on because it's a, a common talking point and it is uh, untrue. Uh, the last thing I'll comment on uh, here is the some of the psychiatric issues. And again, this is something that could get probably multiple podcasts and I do not claim sufficient expertise um, to, to discuss it. There are going to be lots of psychological changes after a surgery like this. Um, many factors like depression and self-esteem and self-image uh, tend to improve. Some of these improvements, again, similar to the weight re-equilibration, some of these improvements also might wane uh, a couple of years down the line. And a small fraction of patients, similar to how we had a small fraction of patients who regained uh, a significant amount of weight, a very small fraction of patients may actually experience a worsening of some of these symptoms. But if you think about you know, what happens in the immediate post-op period, people have dietary restrictions for you know, several weeks post-operatively to weeks to months. There are going to be permanent changes in their eating and dietary habits. There's a different experience being in their body. There's an ongoing shift in their body image, certain other lifestyle behaviors, interactions with others. Sometimes people are in relationships and, you know, changes that are happening to your body in a relationship can lead to additional stress or conflict or jealousy or all sorts of or resentment, all sorts of things that can emerge. So, so, you know, turns out psychology, as with many other things, is really complicated and a very individual experience. And so um, this is part of why there's that field, as I mentioned, of bariatric psychiatry, assessing, evaluating these things, you know, um, evaluating treatable things, projecting potential risks, having ongoing uh, management postoperatively. There is evidence of a higher risk of suicide and non-fatal self-harm after undergoing surgery. There is a detectable risk. Does this risk outweigh all of the other benefits that we have discussed so far? On the whole, I would say no. But again, uh, it's a different when you're talking about a particular person. Um, that, that risk is 100% for the person who does end up harming themselves. And this is why, you know, consulting 
This is why, uh, as I said before, people who meet criteria to be eligible for the surgery don't just go straight to the OR. There is a, a pretty detailed process, evaluation, consultation with you know multiple types of healthcare professionals to evaluate this and to manage things to, to uh, basically get the most benefit that we can out of this while uh, reducing the risks as much as we can as well. So this is a super complex and active area of research, obviously, um, but it's something that I thought obviously to be open about these things so that people know what they're uh, uh, you know getting into and talking about with this procedure. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, uh, sort of complications, one of the major uh, sort of barriers, perceived barriers, is the sort of like idea that, oh, well, if I get this procedure and I, I want to have a kid, uh, for example, that that is going to be severely impacted here, right? It, particularly because many of these procedures are performed in women. And so that's that's you know an ongoing not only barrier but also just perceived like issue. So what's the what's the deal with like fertility, pregnancy considerations, and metabolic surgery? Yeah, you're right. Overwhelmingly, these procedures are done in women, which is odd given that obesity impacts both you know sexes equally. But that's the state of things right now. Um, obesity reduces fertility for both men and women, um, and so. This is a, a pretty common issue that that um, that uh, folks with obesity are are dealing with. Weight loss, really, by any mechanism, whether lifestyle, medication related, surgery, or any combination, can actually rapidly restore people's fertility. And so, this is something that's actually pretty important, um, particularly if uh, women who are undergoing this procedure are on some kind of contraceptive agent. Even the absorption and action of their contraceptive, you know, pill, if they're on oral contraceptive pills, can be altered. And so, a rapid restoration of fertility in the short, in the postoperative period can lead to an unintentional pregnancy. And that is not the best idea within the first 12 to 24 months after surgery, when people are in the most rapid weight loss phase. Rapid weight loss is generally not advised uh, for sustaining a healthy pregnancy. And so there are considerations as it relates to contraception in the postoperative period until people pass that 12, typically more like 24 month time point, at which point uh, the risks um, of, of uh, pregnancy go way down in terms of having pregnancy related complications. And so that's that's kind of like the, the big picture here is a rapid restoration of fertility that and, and uh, changes in the pharmacology of contraceptive agents, typically uh, uh, oral contraceptive agents that need to be absorbed through that gastrointestinal tract. And so that's something to know about so that nobody gets surprised on the back end of this surgery, especially during the rapid weight loss period. Yeah. I'll just move on from the kid section into some of the preoperative sort of lifestyle change and what and post-op. Because again, people are going to have questions like, uh, okay, is weight loss recommended prior to having this procedure, for example? Or what about exercise recommendations post-operatively? Because you know, if you uh, work with individuals, your coach, healthcare provider, some of these things may not necessarily be in your wheelhouse. So I think the most interesting thing I found when doing some digging on this is that while all of the current clinical practice guidelines for metabolic bariatric surgery strongly uh, make reference to using this multidisciplinary approach. Let's get everybody on board. Let's get the behaviorist. Let's get the psychiatrist. Let's get the you know registered dietitian, etc. There's no specific mention of exercise promotion prior to the procedure. Same thing with actual like dietary pattern change. And further, there's no like consensus that people should lose weight prior to the procedure. And further, there's no explicit mention of we should require people to lose weight or start exercising prior to the procedure, which is the current area of controversy because at many institutions and many providers sort of do require people to participate in this sort of lifestyle uh, modification program. Many insurance companies 
for example, are like, oh, you must show that you can successfully lose weight via lifestyle before you get surgerized, which is weird because it's like, if an individual could lose a significant amount, a clinically significant amount of weight and maintain it via lifestyle alone, and they would likely prefer that, in fact, that's the report on most of these surveys, why the heck would they be seeking surgery anyway? Yeah, imagine a scenario where somebody had like a, a, a obesity-related cancer, and they're like, you got to show us that you can lose weight before we'll approve your cancer treatment or <laughs> something like that. It's just madness. Do you think some of the trainers that are anti, like, anti, they're against the anti-obesity medications, do you think that they would favor this sort of mandatory participation? Yes, obviously. Yeah, which is weird. Well, great. Well, let, let's talk about it. Okay, so first, first question somebody might ask is, does weight loss before metabolic surgery improve surgical outcomes? The current evidence overall suggests that uh, if somebody loses weight prior to metabolic bariatric surgery, they have a reduction in risk of uh, surgical complications. In general, surgical mortality and complications are inversely related to BMI prior to procedure. So effectively, the lower you get somebody's BMI, uh, assuming it's not due to like illness that causes mass, you know, massive weight loss. Um, yeah, they're generally going to have less complications, less risk of mortality, things of that nature. From a technical standpoint, it seems like a number of the procedures get much easier, particularly if someone's storing a lot of fat in their liver. The livers are very large. So yeah, and also just in general, health tends to improve when people lose uh, excess body weight. Um, what's more interesting though in this data is like the mandatory participation in these programs is not necessarily the key to success. Effectively being randomized into one of these mandatory programs does not in and of itself confer any benefit, meaning that people don't lose more weight after the surgery. People don't uh, have less complications after the surgery. It only is better if it actually works. And so effectively, folks that are not in these mandatory groups who still lose weight prior to the, uh, uh, prior to the surgery have the same benefits. So it, all this is to say that lifestyle change, even with intensive support, and like in this case, a carrot at the end of the stick where you're like, okay, if I do the lifestyle thing, I show them I can do it, then I can get this procedure. I think it's you know going to help me. Even with that sort of carrot on the end of the stick, it's very difficult for a lifestyle. Uh, some folks will thrive on this. And I think in our sort of fitness, fitness adjacent sort of space, we just have an overrepresentation of people that lifestyle works particularly well for. So Absolutely. The, yes. <laughs> so if the if the standard rate is one in eight, one in ten, maybe depending on how you slice the data up, it's probably three, four, five and ten in the fitness space or whatever. And it's like I mean, I guess it makes more sense if half the people here have had a dramatic response to lifestyle. They think everybody will have that same experience, which, you know, just you use the Google machine and uh, you do a little reading. I think you might be absolved of that sort of uh, uh, notion. Yeah, it's just people who take their own personal experience and generalize it to everybody else. The idea of like, I do, I did it. So you should be able to, which is not how biology works, right? Yeah. Because I could say the same thing of like, uh, hey, so I deadlifted 765. So why can't you? I don't know. Why can't you? I, we problem. just did it. We both, yeah, we both have two <laughs> legs, two arms, a back. Like, presumably, yeah. you could just do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've linked a lot of data in the uh, citation uh, list that's linked in the show notes so you guys can review this data as well. Let's move on to the sort of post op period. So, what do people getting metabolic surgery need to eat immediately post operatively? Usually, the early diets, so like immediately 
after the person has had the surgery, that's usually surgeon or hospital specific, um, not necessarily a, a sort of guidelines recommended dietary pattern. So like the first day, few days or whatever, but it, overall it's a sort of staged approach based on the needs at various points in the healing process and what the individual can actually tolerate. So initially in the hospital, we call this a clear liquid diet. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's clear liquids, usually little to no actual calories in there, but it's like, Hey, we just surgerized your gut. Can you actually tolerate anything? Are there any holes? They're like, we need to make sure that you're good to go here. And then people are advanced. That's just a medical term for saying they've increased what they can actually eat. So we've advanced their diet to full liquids, plus or minus pureed foods at this point. Just progressive, progressive loading for the GI tract, if you will. Progressive loading of the GI tract. I love that. (laughs) Now, at this point, there are some specific uh, sort of recommendations, mainly surrounding hydration levels. So like how much fluid should somebody be taking in and also protein intake. The deal here is that people, again, because they cannot eat that much food due to not only just post-operative surgery in general, people tend to eat much, much less, but also because their gastrointestinal system has been surgerized, uh, their total intake of food is much lower, and that includes protein. And there is a risk of losing a lot of lean body mass if you don't get enough protein in. So the current guidelines from the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Guidelines uh, recommends 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. Interestingly, in the guidelines, they don't make mention of like an ideal body weight or like a lean mass weight, which would require people to like not only calculate ideal body weight or do like a DEXA scan prior to this. They just say total body weight. So that's a pretty high dose of protein. I assume that, you know, for many patients, this would pretty much mean all like protein shakes or protein puree. Uh, And yeah, just uh, that's the main focus and about a liter and a half per day minimum of actual uh, water or sort of uh, fluids. Uh, this is usually what people are discharged from the hospital on, depending on the um, uh, institution and how long the person's in the hospital, and usually with a liquid vitamin, as Austin talked about earlier. Uh, after about this two-week mark, the diet is advanced, progressively loaded, if you will, to soft solids. Again, emphasis on high protein, including some more carbohydrates, uh, particularly those with fiber in them from fruits and vegetables. As Austin talked about earlier, the recommendation is to limit foods with added sugars to a small amount, less than 10% of total uh daily calories, which is the exact same guidelines from the current dietary guidelines for adults. Because um, yeah, you can they can have some uh, interesting symptoms relating to sugar intake. And again, at this point, they're instead of on a, being on a liquid vitamin, usually it's advanced to a chewable vitamin. Now about two months postoperatively, although this varies significantly with between individuals, they're advanced to sort of regular food. They still keep this protein recommendation, 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. They advise having protein at every meal. Uh, These guidelines also advise having about 50% of the diet come from carbohydrates, which is the amount of carbohydrates that most people eat anyways. And they say whole grains, fruit, and vegetables recommended, continue to limit added sugars. And then the rest of the calories come from dietary fat, and they make the uh, recommendation that the predominant uh, type of fat should be unsaturated. Now, if you're wondering like, well, how does this vary from like the current dietary guidelines or what barbell medicine would would recommend for a health promoting dietary pattern? And the answer is it, it freaking doesn't. It's the same except for their protein guideline is maybe a little lower than what we would stipulate for people trying to maximize performance. But like 1.2 grams per kilogram per day for a person who weighs, you know, 150 kilos, that is a far higher dose of protein than they need to actually maintain all of their muscle mass. So I think if anything, this would be interesting. I, uh, I might actually reduce the actual protein level just knowing the the uh, body mass of individuals typically undergoing this procedure. Would, do you have a, a comment on that maybe? I would be I, 
not really. I'd be interested in whether there's data on this, but I'm down with that protein intake. That seems fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's going to hurt anybody. I'm just saying yeah. like if somebody's having a difficult time getting food in, it's like sure. 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight per day and you start at 150 kilos. Like that's a, that's a lot of protein yeah. uh, potentially. So anyway, uh, make it an, that, an aspirational target aspirational goals i love that and with respect to the vitamin this is now a regular vitamin and yeah as austin talked about earlier there are uh, recommended post-op nutrient assessments with laboratory testing every three months within the first year of surgery and it's just to avoid any sort of micronutrient deficiencies that may have come up um okay so that's like the post-op diet again it advances uh, progressively usually over the first two months uh, by the two month mark ish people are eating a regular diet um, as far as long-term dietary patterns, so like what do after that initial sort of recovery period, the guidelines are effectively the same uh, as the current 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for adults. Same thing that we would recommend, lean protein at every meal, fiber-containing foods, limit-added sugars. Most of your dietary fat should be of the unsaturated variety. Nothing particularly unique here, right? There's not some top-secret dietary pattern. So this could be vegan, could be vegetarian, could be omnivorous, could be paleo, could be whatever. Okay, so that's that's the deal from a nutri nutrition standpoint. Now let's talk about exercise. We're going to get sexy here. We're going to talk about exercise after metabolic surgery. So just at first, just general statement, exercise can be tough for individuals who are candidates for metabolic surgery. Um, a lot of these individuals have musculoskeletal pain. A lot of these individuals f feel shame, feel embarrassment, have difficulties uh, wanting to participate in exercise, particularly in public settings. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and so I think that making it more accessible is a very important goal and uh, dealing with some of that, uh, those sort of underlying barriers uh, should be the goal of any holistic approach here. Um, as far as what individuals who have metabolic surgery should do uh, after the sort of uh, procedure, there's no specific guideline here. And when I say that, when you look at the actual uh, current clinical practice guidelines, effectively none of them mention specific exercise programs or, oh, you should promote resistance training and aerobic training or anything like that. It's just not really there. The current practical guidelines, which is basically a, a way of saying, hey, we are aware of the current guidelines. We're going to sort of add on to them with our own current sort of a take. It's from the Obesity Surgery Journal. They regurgitate the current uh, physical activity guidelines for adults. That's twice weekly resistance training. That's doing the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity uh, conditioning or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity um, conditioning. They explicitly say that all types of exercise could be prescribed in those without any limitations. Effectively, what they're saying is that some individuals may have mobility restrictions, may have uh, significant musculoskeletal pain that may make um, sort of the exercise recommendation need to be individualized to them. They also say that individuals should be encouraged to start physical activity from day one of surgery by leaving the bed and walking short distances. So when people are like, hey, when should I start exercising? They're probably not referring to just like getting up and walking. Although I suspect that most people are not consulting with a trainer day one post-operatively either. So early exercise in general is beneficial for most surgical uh, situations. Uh, two weeks after they make the recommendation, you can increase exercise up to current pain thresholds. Seems like a nocebo to me, but okay. <laughs> and then at weeks four to six, they state that gradual exposure to increasing exercise with surgeon's permission which again, seems completely unnecessarily restrictive, but here we are. And finally, just what everybody was waiting for, they say that lifting weights greater than 15 pounds and abdominal exercise should be avoided during the first eight to 12 weeks, which is, this is all just made up. 
if you're getting the sense of like, oh, these seem like made up recommendations, that's exactly what they are. Uh, and so there, not only is there no precise advice for return to sport, like, oh, when can you go back to the gym, for example, or when can you compete in a sport? There's no advice for even like gradual exposure to abdominal exercises. And so the what I take from this is that in general, exercise postoperatively should involve both resistance training and aerobic training, just like the current physical activity guidelines. And it's going to be to tolerance. You know, asking somebody, don't lift 15 pounds ever in this first, you know, eight to 12 weeks. It's like, are you carrying around a scale? Like a, like a, you know, like a fish hook with like a little, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And, and if you were wondering how many citations were in this whole section about, uh, Hey, what type of exercise should people uh, be able to do after metabolic surgery? There was zero, not a single one. So yeah, my take on this is that the current guidelines for, uh, uh adults is the same that, uh, people who have undergone metabolic surgery, it's the same, uh, sort of physical activity guidelines. Okay. Now. People might wonder, what is the effect of exercise post-operatively? Now, Austin, do you have any like hypotheses by like of like how uh, undergoing metabolic bariatric surgery would actually affect people's like adherence to an exercise program? Do you predict positive, neutral, or negative effect? Yeah, I think that if you were to poll our listeners, uh, I would expect a hypothesis that it could improve adherence. Uh, a participation in adherence, particularly if like people's body image improves and and they're it's it's part of a constellation of lifestyle behaviors that are being done all together along with surgery. I wonder if there may also be a hypothesis of a reduced responsiveness to training um, to go along with it. But yeah, let like us... if you if you've been surgerized, maybe you can gain less strength or less hypertrophy. Compared yeah, let to us those know. Who have not been surgerized. All right, well, let's talk about it. So the long term exercise promotion via metabolic surgery is in general good. So individuals who underwent bariatric surgery reported more time spent doing moderate to vigorous physical activity than those eligible for surgery, but who did not get the surgery. So we're talking about almost a full hour more of exercise per week uh, for those who actually underwent the surgery. There's still a high prevalence though of physical limitations like musculoskeletal pain and those psychological barriers I talked about earlier, things like fear of injury, lack of confidence, and up to a quarter of these patients though still will be less active um, than they were preoperatively uh, post-op, which kind of goes to your point earlier when you're talking about the various psychiatric uh, sort of things going on, that if you don't address those either preoperatively or postoperatively, it's not like this is a, a necessarily a magic bullet with respect to all things that could potentially be improved, even though it does improve uh, seemingly most things. The question people might ask also is, does exercise postoperatively uh, help with additional weight loss in general? Yes. Meta-analyses show about a 5% greater weight loss and greater reduction in BMI in those who exercise after metabolic surgery compared to those who don't, and uh, additionally, a greater preservation fat-free mass, uh, which would be muscle mass uh, for the largest proportion of that. We'll talk about that here in a second. Um, okay, to your question earlier, your hypothesis, what about strength? What happens here? There's this uh, study, it's a five-year follow-up in these patients who had metabolic surgery, and they showed, in fact, that people lost a uh, lot of strength after having metabolic surgery. Their 1RM leg press went from 182 kilos, so about 396 pounds or 400 pounds, down to 129 kilos, like 286 pounds five years later. It looks like, oh, no, if you just looked at that data set, like five-year data outcome, they lost strength. Um, dang it. The problem is they lost a lot of people to follow up. 
And so less than 10% of the patients, um, the participants in the study actually reported doing the resistance training after the sort of procedure. So it's like, oh, you mean to tell me if you didn't exercise during the five-year period and then we retested your leg press five years later, you're not any stronger? Wild, absolutely wild. Um, that being said, when we look at studies where people who've undergone metabolic bariatric surgery and actually did exercise, you see the same effects on improvements in strength um, that you see from non-surgerized people. So I don't expect any particular difference in people's like strength trajectory based on whether or not they've had metabolic bariatric surgery. You still see large improvements in strength that are consistent with the same data we see in folks who have not had surgery. And I've linked various studies to this, uh, showing that relationship in the show notes. But in general, getting stronger does not appear to be impaired by surgery, but it's not going to magically make someone stronger if they aren't active. Healthier? Yes. Stronger? Probably no direct strength improving effect of metabolic bariatric surgery, although I wouldn't necessarily expect that either. Uh, probably the final thing that that's most important on people's minds with respect to metabolic bariatric surgery is that it could potentially cause a lot of muscle loss. And so does the surgery uh, cause a lot of muscle loss? It really just depends on what you mean by a lot. In general, the total amount of muscle loss with metabolic surgery is likely to be greater than lifestyle alone, but that's because the total amount of weight is far greater. If we talk, if we think that on average, 20 years later, people with uh, undergoing metabolic bariatric surgery lose 20% of their total body weight compared to 5% of total body weight with lifestyle alone. Yes, they're going to have lost more lean body mass, but that's just because they lost more weight. The relative proportions of muscle loss don't actually appear to be that much different. So in general, we think that, um, you know, about 20 to 30% of all the weight that's lost, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's anti-obesity medications, whether it's surgery, uh, 20 to 30% of that weight lost is likely from fat-free mass, which includes muscle, which includes water, glycogen, anything that's not fat is in that fat-free muscle, uh, fat-free mass sort of, uh, uh, component. You can make it a little smaller with exercise, specifically resistance training. You can make it a little smaller with slower weight loss, uh, and by creating the calorie deficit, uh, through more and more exercise. So all those things seem to reduce the rate, but we don't actually know how low can you go. Um, on, our, on average, though, metabolic surgery causes about the same amount of fat-free mass loss, about 20 to 30% whenever it's been measured. So I don't predict any sort of like crazy fat-free mass loss from met uh, metabolic bariatric surgery that wouldn't otherwise have occurred with lifestyle alone, for example. And the final thing we'll talk about here, can people who have had metabolic surgery still gain muscle? Yes, although I will tell you there's not a lot of data here. And, and further, the data that exists is not um, sufficient to my liking. Go figure that, Austin. So there's one study that compared those who did exercise. They did resistance training, included the leg press, the bench press, et cetera, plus some conditioning. Um, they did 8 to 12 reps uh, by four sets, and then they also did uh, conditioning three times per week. And they had all had metabolic bariatric surgery. And they were compared to a group who also had metabolic bariatric surgery, but who didn't exercise. And they did it for six months postoperatively. Fat-free mass loss was less in the group that exercised. They lost about three kilos less of fat-free mass. The strength improved in the exercise group. The type 1 and type 2 muscle fiber cross-sectional area in a muscle in the leg of the exercise group reached pre-surgery levels at month 9. This was uh, higher than the non-exercise usual care group who still saw some uh, muscular atrophy. Interestingly, though, 
the type one and type two muscle fiber cross-sectional area was also higher in the group who had the surgery and who exercised than in healthy lean controls that didn't exercise. They also had greater satellite cell uh, content and capillarization of the muscles. These are basically signals uh, for muscular hypertrophy that we would want to see if people were actually growing more muscle. Um, and in general, under the microscope, the authors reported that the exercise group's skeletal muscle resembled that of healthy, lean individuals from both a genotype and phenotype standpoint, suggesting that no impairment in muscle grain processes occurred in those postoperatively. Now, what I would have wanted to see, though, is three groups. The people who had the surgery who lifted weights, people who had the surgery who didn't lift weights, and then like an age-matched group who did not have the surgery but who also lifted weights to see if like the surgery itself influenced the sort of um, trajectory. My prediction would be that the surgery actually would improve hypertrophy outcomes compared to those who were eligible for the surgery, but who did not get it. Mainly due to like an insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, inflammatory, sort of all these sort of things that we know negatively contribute to muscular hypertrophy trajectories. So that would be my prediction. Do you agree? Plausible. Yeah. All right, we'll take plausible. <laughs> okay, so obviously this podcast is getting super, super long. We've covered all the pre and post-op sort of nutrition, exercise sort of stuff. I think, again, something we keep coming back to various places in this podcast is sort of like this idea that this, these procedures are stigmatized. There are a lot of barriers in place and definitely misconceptions. I don't know that we can break down the stigmas here via this podcast. It is our hope to sort of maybe change a little bit of that, but we can definitely address some misconceptions and talk about the barriers. Do you want to summarize that for our, our listenership? Yeah. I think hopefully we've conveyed the message clearly so far that these procedures are pretty effective uh, for both weight loss and various health-related outcomes. I think we've also conveyed the message that the risks in terms of operative complications um, are relatively low, uh, probably lower than a lot of people uh, thought them to be, and this rate continues to decrease over time. But there does remain quite a lot of barriers and stigma, and this comes from a bunch of different places, probably many of which I don't even know, but I think of three big buckets. One are the public, that's you guys listening, in terms of perceptions and beliefs and thoughts about these procedures. Um, there's been a lot of qualitative research, like surveying people for their beliefs about this. You know, One survey study of about 650 patients found that on average, people expected to lose as much as 38% of their weight after surgery, which is probably a bit high in terms of an expectation. So maybe their expectations were not exactly accurate in terms of what, what you can expect on average. Um, but interestingly, in that same, same survey, most patients were willing to accept some risk of dying to undergo surgery. And perhaps most shockingly to me, 19.5% of patients were willing to accept a risk of death of at least 10%, which is an enormously high risk of dying from a surgery. That, that risk is 250 times higher than the actual risk of death of, again, 0.04% uh, from these surgeries. So there are just inaccurate ideas and expectations abound in the general public. I also mentioned how commonly people think you get this surgery and then everybody's just going to regain all the weight back. We have said that for ruin line gastric bypass, for example, that rate is probably about 3%, um, potentially less, which is uh, uh, far less than you would uh, think listening to people talk about these procedures in public. The other bucket is going to be from clinicians. So there's a bit of a referral bias, what we'll say, from like primary care doctors who may, who, who likely uh, under-refer patients for consultation with surgeons. As I mentioned, it's not like, oh, you meet criteria, the OR is ready for you, but rather 
it's a referral for a consultation. And I have heard from many of my own colleagues who have inaccurate ideas and beliefs about this. Some of this is from people who like work in a hospital like me. I recognize my referral bias when I work in a hospital of who am I going to see? I'm going to see people who had complications. I'm going to see people who had ulcers, who got you know nutrient deficiencies, um, who, who had other sorts of complications. I can't let that cloud my overall impression of this when I have data and evidence to tell me the overall outcomes from these things. Um, there are a lot of clinicians who still believe obesity is just a pure behavior problem that people just need to lifestyle harder, various other stigmas uh, that come into play that lead to an under referral for consultation for these things. And then the last bucket is just going to be insurance coverage for these kind of things. Uh, which is something that you know we are not experts in in that whole industry. So there are a lot of inaccurate expectations and inaccurate beliefs and and other barriers. This extends both from the adult population to also the pediatric population, which we did not touch on uh, in this in this podcast. Um, but overall, hopefully, by discussing some of these things, presenting some of this data, repeating the things that are important along the way, um, we can uh, we can clarify some of these things, bring people's ideas and beliefs more into line with the current evidence, and and you guys can can help us with the. With the message out there should we should we uh rebrand metabolic surgery so it's already been rebranded from bariatric surgery to metabolic surgery or metabolic bariatric surgery for the, the hangers honors um should we rebrand it to behavior change surgery sure. let me make let me let me make the case here so we know that undergoing metabolic surgery does seem to change people's dietary patterns they eat far less it does seem to increase adherence to physical activity participation uh, amongst other behaviors. So you can't really argue that it isn't a behavioral change intervention. Yeah. And because it is the sum of these behaviors that ultimately results in the disease modification trajectory, in this case, the disease being obesity, reducing the excess body fat, like uh, you're helping people do the behavior change via surgery in this particular case. The medications, for example, behavior change medications, the anti-obesity medications, lifestyle, you can't get the people to participate in those without lifestyle, uh, without behavior change. So all of these are just different sort of avenues for behavior change. And I think that supporting people's behavior change via whatever means are necessary, provided the benefits outweigh the risks, seems like a reasonable position. Do you agree? I agree. I'm with you. Surprisingly. <laughs> You not a debate podcast, so not not yet. We, we might come back. We've had a lot of listeners, so yeah, yeah. we'll may come back to that. All right, give people give people the soundbite. All right, time to summarize. Number one, people who meet ethnicity specific BMI cutoffs, which we outlined at the beginning, should be considered for metabolic surgery by having a consultation with a surgeon. Number two, the current available procedures are highly effective with very large, clinically significant amounts of weight loss that is sustained for decades, out to at least 20 years on average. These procedures can also lead to improvements or complete remission of a variety of obesity-related diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure. And they can also reduce the risk of various forms of heart disease, cancer, and improve many other um, uh, conditions. These procedures have become increasingly safe over time. Current complication rate of around 1% overall and a rate of mortality death due to the procedure of 0.04%, so extre extremely uncommon. There are some considerations with respect to perioperative mental health, substance use disorders, particularly alcohol that we talked about, and the rate of weight regain to within 5% of your preoperative weight is low. For example, about 3% for gastric bypass surgery. 
Overall, these interventions remain an underutilized tool in the management of obesity due to a variety of barriers and social stigmas. And hopefully by improving knowledge, reducing uh, some of this stigma and bringing people's uh, expectations more in line with evidence, uh, these can be viewed more favorably as part of a comprehensive management plan, uh, including lifestyle, medical, and potentially surgical management. You know what? Honestly, we're just going to delete the rest of the podcast and just put that. Yeah, that's fine. Done. That's fine. Just do that. <laughs> All right. That is a wrap on episode 252 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. A uh, special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for helping coming up with this podcast idea, outlining it for us, and, and participating in the actual podcast. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. And thank you guys so much. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.